is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Good morning, church, and happy new year. I trust that you all managed to get a great Christmas and new year, even if it was somewhat curtailed and limited this year. Hazel and I were so thankful to have Christmas Day with Tom, our eldest son, and his wife, Steffi. But we did miss seeing Eddie, our other son, and his wife, Chloe, and little Autumn, our granddaughter, who has begun walking at just 10 months old. Now, I'm sure that we are not alone in feeling that we are missing out on key moments, that life is passing us by while we are stuck at home, locked down and restricted. 2020 can feel like it was just a nothing year, a year where nothing happened, a wasted year in many ways. But God wastes nothing. He is always preparing us and getting us ready for his plans and his purposes. We know in theory that his ways are not our ways, that his thoughts aren't our thoughts, but in truth we live our lives every day as if our thoughts are in fact the very thoughts of God, that God is somehow in agreement with exactly what I'm thinking and what my position is on any given topic. And I think we easily slip into believing that what I would do in any given situation is what God would do. And this year we found out that things really don't work that way, do they? God is in charge and his will trumps our will. His ways really are not our ways and his thoughts are so much higher and so much bigger and so much better than ours. I think that if 2020 has taught us anything, then it is that we should be as a church and as individuals to be resilient. More often than not, as Christians, we pray that anything bad, difficult or challenging be taken away and we ask God to make it all better. We think all things working together for our good and his glory means that God makes all the bad stuff go away and life looks great. It's easy and everything's running smoothly. However, this is not the life that Jesus promised us as Christians. He actually suggested the exact opposite. He promised tribulations and trials and sorrows in John 16 verse 33. And earlier in the book of John, he said that we would be taken to court because of him, even persecuted because of him. In the New Testament, Jesus himself and the apostles all call us to be resilient, to be able to stand firm and withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions, which is how the dictionary defines resilience, as well as being able to spring back after bending, stretching or being compressed. The Apostle Paul demonstrated resilience frequently. He says in 2 Corinthians that he often received 40 lashes from the Jews. He was beaten with rods, stone, shipwrecked, in danger from robbers, in danger from his own people, stabbing him in the back. And on top of that, the anxiety that pastoring the churches brought. Who said that working for the church was an easy job? I can just see the job advert now. An exciting opportunity exists to lead a local church in a rural town where the death in service benefits are out of this world. The local authority is somewhat adversarial as there, and there's a high possibility for public floggings and beatings on occasion. 
That said, there are some great opportunities to travel, but without travel insurance, as the insurance companies won't touch us because of the previous shipwrecks, bandits and teammate mutinies. There is also an in-house counsellor available free of charge for all staff on account of the anxiety that you will no doubt suffer from the congregation. Applicants will be required to sit a full psychological examination prior to being offered the position. You don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. It's interesting, isn't it, how Paul equates the challenges of leading a church with being beaten and stoned. That's probably a conversation for another time. But the point is, we are only promised challenge in our life as authentic Christians, not comfort. Comfort is the primary goal of our culture and of this age. Now, there's nothing wrong with a bit of comfort, but first things first. It cannot be our primary goal. Comfort cannot be the thing that everything in our life points towards. I remember when Tom and Eddie were little and we were having a visiting speaker back to our house for Sunday lunch and the boys had been trained not to interrupt but to listen, eat their meal and speak when spoken to. And on this occasion, they were getting on with their dinner and listening to the conversation when I suddenly saw Eddie's ears prick up when the visiting speaker said that they did not have a TV in their house. Now, for Eddie, this was like telling him that these couple lived in a cardboard box at the bottom of the garden. Such was the thought of life without a TV. And I was interested to see what would happen next. And sure enough, as Eddie squirmed in his seat a little, and then he said, if you don't have a TV in your house, then what does all your furniture point at? Now, I wasn't expecting that, but it was very insightful. You see, comfort in our day is the TV in our story. Everything in our lives points to it. If you don't have it, then all effort is focused on getting it. But comfort is not what the gospel points to. It's not what authentically following Jesus leads to most of the time. Jesus said to take up our cross Paul says to stand firm, to endure till the end. James says that we're to consider those who have endured to be blessed. Comfort is not what salvation promises. It's not what authentically following Jesus often leads to. So we must learn to be resilient. Not so I can simply get through, but so Jesus' name is glorified. Paul ends this long discourse about his sufferings with this in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It was for the sake of Christ. It was to the praise of his glory. So as authentic followers of Jesus, we too must learn how to be resilient, not being thrown this way or that way by any and every challenge, trial or difficulty that comes our way. We're to be a resilient family of authentic followers who are not thrown into a flat spin when things don't go our way, when things that we thought should happen don't, or when the way we think things should have been done aren't done that way. So with all this in mind, I've been thinking about what it is to be resilient. And so I want us to look together this morning uh, at Ephesians um, chapter 1 and the first 14 verses and that will help us I believe build a strong foundation that will help us withstand and recover quickly from difficult condition and to be resilient so let's begin with the first two verses of Ephesians 
chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's way of writing not simply to the leaders of the church, but to the whole church, to leaders, to members, and in fact to anyone who would consider themselves authentic followers of Jesus gathering in that place. Paul is not apologetic for who he is or what he's been called to do. He's secure in his identity and what he's been put on the earth to do. He's confident that he has been chosen by God, that he's been called to be an apostle, and he's confident in his salvation and all that that means. And church, I believe that one of the keys to true resilience is knowing who you are, is knowing that you are saved and not simply that you're saved, but knowing what God has done for you in your salvation. And in these coming verses that we're going to look at in Ephesians, we are going to dig a deep well about what our salvation means so that we can draw on it in order to withstand and recover quickly from difficult conditions. As we read these verses, I hope that you will see these three distinct sections that all end with something like, to the praise of his glory. Each one showing us how each person of the Trinity plays a significant part in our salvation. So let's look at this first section in Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Here we see the Father's part in our salvation which should allow us to be resilient because we have everything we could possibly need. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We can withstand and recover quickly from difficulties because we have a heavenly inheritance that we can access anytime. All of heaven's resources available to us because we are in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing. We can withstand and recover quickly from difficulties because we see the Father's relationship with the Son and the ferocity with which he loves him and us and the lengths he will go in order to have us as his sons and daughters in Christ. It's evident from these verses that our Heavenly Father is such a good, good Father who has chosen us in Christ to be his sons and daughters even before the creation of the world. Can you even get your head around that? Knowing all you know about yourself, your worst thoughts, your secret actions and your hidden habits, you were still chosen, not simply to be a son or a daughter, but to be a holy son, a blameless daughter without fault before a holy God. That is how God sees you, without fault, because in our salvation we are united with Christ, united in his death, united in his resurrection and even in his ascension. Because as Paul will tell us later in Ephesians 2, we are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Grace 
is an amazing thing. Knowing that our salvation does not rest on my performance, but on his, is an incredible truth. My salvation is a free gift because the Father was willing to release his only son to die, that I might be holy and blameless before him, that I might be adopted as his son, a son who is now a co-heir with his own son, Jesus Christ. For some, the idea of grace like this is too much to handle, knowing all that they know about themselves. They feel unworthy, too far gone, done too many things that would exclude them. The idea that they don't have to clean up their act before they are worthy is too much to believe or even hope for. They feel their own sin excludes them. But if that's how you feel, there is hope in these verses for you. There is hope if you feel like that. Equally, there is the biblical concept of original sin to think about. This is where humankind has a hereditary stain, if you like. And because Adam and Eve's original sin back in the Garden of Eden, Eden, Eden we are all now blighted with its consequences. However, let's consider what we've just read in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us. He chose you before you sinned, before you were too far gone. And more than that, he chose you not simply before you sinned, but before Adam sinned. As my good friend Julian Adams always says, you were in Christ before you were in Adam. You were in Christ before Adam had even been created. That means that you were in Christ and holy and blameless even before Adam and Eve caused that hereditary stain of original sin because you were in him before the foundation of the world. Father, God chose you not simply to be his dearly loved son or daughter, but he chose you to be holy and blameless before him, before the world was created. How mind blowing is that? The Bible uses the word predestination to try and express this mind bending reality. It's a word that causes controversy for some, but it's a word that contains a powerful truth whilst maintaining some sense of mystery, too. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. A mystery does not invalidate truth. The truth is that you were predestined before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless sons and daughters to the purpose of his will, which basically means because he's God, he can do what he wants. It's like when those of us who are parents answer our child's why question with because I said so. Not because we're annoyed or tired, but because there are times when as a parents we don't have to explain everything. Nor does our child always need to understand everything. But we still require their cooperation. He is God and he gets to do what he wants. But even in that, we are not without involvement. In our predestination, we were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless, to become sons and daughters adopted to God the Father in Christ. Yet I still have to choose to accept him. It's a mystery, but its purpose is to bring us to worship, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
This is the Father's part in our salvation and knowing this should help us be resilient. Knowing this means that we can be totally confident in our salvation. I can't lose what I never earned. If I did nothing to receive it, which is the message of grace, then what action could I do that would cause me to lose it? How can I lose what the Father predestined before the creation of the world? So we've reached the end of that first segment, reaching that first to the praise of his glorious grace. And now we're going to press on and see what the second portion holds for us in verses 7 to 12. Ephesians 1, 7 to 12. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We've seen the Father's part in our salvation and this section now focuses on Jesus, the Son of God and his part, which is probably the most familiar part to many of us. But we do need to be aware of that old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt can mean a disregard for something that should be considered. And so I think so many Christians are not all that resilient because they've not fully understood their salvation. They've not fully understood Jesus' part in it and its implications. We've seen that we've been chosen by the Father, predestined before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless sons and daughters. But how do we achieve this wonderful position? Is it just a done deal? Well, no. It certainly deals with the matter of original sin, the stain by which I'm tarnished as a descendant of Adam. But what of the sins that I commit? those I accidentally commit and the ones I do deliberately. It's not just the things I do wrong either, but the things I don't do right as well. In the New Testament, James says, remember it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So it's not just about not doing the stuff you shouldn't, but it's also about doing the things that you know you should as well. This is why Jesus' part in our salvation is so important. What Jesus did on the cross wasn't simply to show the love of the Father and his readiness to forgive. Because if it was, it would be fair to assume that our position could be gained by simply following what the Old Testament scriptures showed. They're clearly visible there. And thus our foundation could be found on our own. If all Jesus came to do was show a loving Father who was ready to forgive, then that would indicate that you can, in fact, save yourself, that your own efforts could be enough to save you. But Jesus' death on the cross at Calvary was so much more than a signpost that the Father was ready to forgive. It was the means by which the Father would forgive. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Our salvation is in Christ. Redemption means deliverance by the payment of a ransom. 
This is a word used throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word ransom would be used when a family member paid a price for someone to be released from prison. Elsewhere in the New Testament, ransom was used as the term for setting a slave free. Jesus uses the word ransom himself in Matthew 20, 28, saying, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, we were slaves to sin and Jesus' part in our salvation is that he is our ransom. He paid the price that we could not pay. He came to do the thing we could not do and that was save ourselves. His blood paid the ransom price so that in Christ we have been redeemed. And the knowledge of this is what should cause us to be resilient. The knowledge that not only has original sin stain on me be dealt with, but so too is the stain on my life that my own personal sin has caused. Jesus' blood has redeemed me and my sin has been forgiven according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us. It's a work of grace. I'm unable to save myself because I can't pay the ransom price. I can't earn my way to redemption. It's all because of Jesus' blood. This is his part in my salvation. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you are not your own either. You've been bought with a great price. You've been redeemed and are now what the Bible calls a bond slave of Christ. You now belong to him. And in belonging to him, you are now caught up with his mission. You can understand the ultimate purpose of the Father's will, which is to unite or sum up all things in Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. God's plan, according to Paul, is to reunite all things in Christ together, together again, to bring them to the fullness of things that once were. The expression immediately suggests that things have already been in the perfect condition once, but they are now no longer in that condition, but they will be so again. They are to be reunited. Don't you love the fact that verse 4 says that our salvation is in Christ before creation, that is at the beginning of time. And then in verse 10, we see that our salvation remains secure in him at the fullness of time, meaning that when time is wrapped up, when the end of time comes and Jesus comes again. He is the Alpha and the, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I am in him. And this knowledge should make us resilient, knowing this should make us secure in our identity as sons and daughters, because as verse 11 tells us, we have an inheritance because of his choosing of us, because of our predestination. So when we say he works all things together for our good, we're not placing our confidence in future comfort, assuming that our inheritance equals our comfort and ease of living, but that he works all things for our good according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, our security in Jesus and his part in our salvation should result in the praise of his glory, not ours. Our resilience is to the praise of his glory. Things working out are for his glory. Even our inheritance is for his glory, not for our comfort. Else we'd just be spoilt children demanding our inheritance now and squandering it on our own comfort and pleasure rather than his praise and his glory. 
So we've now come to the end of that next segment, to that second, to the praise of his glory. And now we're going to press on to that final portion, verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I just love this. We've seen the father's part in our salvation in that we he chose us before the creation of the world. We've seen the son's part in that he has redeemed us and now what this bit is basically saying is that the Spirit's part is to make it all real. Although this is the first actual mention of the Holy Spirit, and even though I focused on the Father and Son's part in our salvation, in truth, the Holy Spirit has been involved in everything we've been discussing thus far. We cannot grasp the mystery of predestination and our being chosen before the creation of the world without the Holy Spirit. We can't even be aware of our need of redemption without the Holy Spirit. And even if we could, we couldn't receive that redemption apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We have to be born again of the Spirit. To be honest, I don't even believe that we can even find God without the work of the Holy Spirit. In order to find God, we need a lights on moment. And it is the Holy Spirit who flicks the switch. But here in our passage, the Holy Spirit's part in our salvation is now explicitly mentioned. The first is a seal of our salvation and the second is as a guarantee of our full inheritance as sons and daughters of God. Now, my Essex boy version of the Bible would say that the Holy Spirit's part in your salvation is to seal the deal. At least that's where my mind went when I read it. Imagine my surprise when I studied the Greek and read the commentaries to find out that is pretty much what it means. It seems that the meaning it conveys is like when two parties draw up a contract of agreement, there's a seal on it or in today's terms, signatures that establish the authority and authenticity that it contains. Many of you may have been surprised to see pictures of uh, on the news in recent weeks of a plane flying in from Brussels carrying the actual Brexit deal document that was to be actually signed. Now, I just assumed it was all electronic, but we still require the authority and authenticity and truth of the details that it contains to be sealed with the relevant signatures. And your salvation is sealed by the authority of God, the Holy Spirit, as being authentic and truthful. It's real. But the word seal can also signify ownership too. Farmers seal their animals with brand so that when they use communal grazing, the shepherds know which sheep belong to who. You are a sheep of his fold and he knows his sheep and his sheep know his voice. But others know you are his too. The powers and principalities know that you belong to Jesus because you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're marked with the Holy Spirit. The other meaning of the word seal is not used too much today because we prefer the phrase tamper proof. Your gas meter will have a tamper proof label on it and it has it for two reasons, namely security and safety. Security because gas or electricity is valuable and the seal prevents theft. If the seal is broken, then you, the homeowner, can be charged with theft. Equally, gas or electricity is dangerous and if the meter is tampered with, then the gas or electricity could leak out and cause an explosion or an electric shock. And so again, the seal ensures safety of the appliance too. 
In fact, when Jesus was buried, the authorities sealed his tomb, probably with a lot of wax, for this very reason, to prevent the theft of the body and to ensure the security of its contents. It was an anti-theft, tamper-proof seal. And you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have an anti-theft, tamper-proof seal on your life that ensures the security and safety of your life. A seal that signifies ownership and most significantly demonstrates the authority authenticity and truth of your salvation it is this being sealed with the holy spirit and the knowledge of its meaning that causes us to be resilient we were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it and this seal is the person of the holy spirit who paul then says is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it This word guarantee is another important word that we need to understand as it will help us be resilient. Today, we mostly associate the word guarantee with replacing faulty items or products. The manufacturer gives us, the consumer, a guarantee that the product will do what it says on the tin for a minimum period of time. But guarantee can also mean a promise with certainty which gets us a little closer to the meaning that Paul would have had in mind when he used the Greek word Arabon. This word translated guarantee is more of a down payment really, a deposit if you like. When you want to secure something you pay a deposit. If you saw a car you liked on the forecourt and you wanted to buy it you would leave a cash deposit which was a guarantee that you'd come back and pay the balance and that they would not sell the car to anyone else while you were away. Arabon is a special kind of guaranteed deposit in that the deposit has to be made in the same currency as the full payment. You couldn't leave a deposit for your car in pounds and pence and then when you come back pay in apples. It's really important for us to understand this because it means that the seal in the person of the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your full inheritance. It's the down payment we receive now but it's part of our full heavenly inheritance to come and this helps us understand the kingdom now and not yet paradox too we've received the kingdom in part and we will receive it in full one day we've received the down payment of our heavenly inheritance now ahead of the full receipt of it but the deposit of heaven we now have is the same currency and is sufficient for us to demonstrate heaven on earth, to live out the kingdom now, not yet, right here, right here on earth. Please feel free to get excited at any point. But these verses should fill us with hope, with awe and strength. Is this knowledge of our salvation that will put a spring in our step, that causes us to get some backbone, to stand up straight, to stand firm and to be and remain resilient. Because of our salvation, we have all we need in Jesus. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been united with Christ, chosen in Christ by the Father before the creation of the world. Jesus' death on the cross means that I've been redeemed. Jesus has paid the ransom price with his blood. And as a result, I've been adopted in his family. We're now sons and daughters through Jesus, co-heirs with him. The Holy Spirit is the seal on your life that ensures the security and safety of your life. A seal that signifies ownership and most significantly demonstrates the authority, authenticity and truth of your salvation. 
Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing your full inheritance and he is the down payment of our heavenly inheritance right now. When we understand this, not only can we stand firm, not only can we be resilient, but we can join with the psalmist and say, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Knowing the Heavenly Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit's parts in our salvation, really knowing them, knowing what it means to be saved and what each, uh, what we each have as a result should fill us with joy and a desire to have a willing spirit that will sustain us and make us resilient. Now, I don't feel I can end without giving you space to respond and I believe there'll be many who want to respond to that prayer, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And I want to pray, just as Paul says, just four verses on from where I've ended today in Ephesians 1.18, that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So if that's you, if you feel the Holy Spirit touching you right now, if you want to respond to that, wherever you are, at home, wherever, just stand. Engage with the Holy Spirit. If you know the Holy Spirit stirred something in you while I've been speaking, then just acknowledge that. If you're alone or even if not, why don't you post something on the chat of the stream just to say that you're standing and then why don't you stand? Finally, if you've been watching this and you're not yet an authentic follower of Jesus, then I'd love to pray for you. And I'd ask again that you just Make a note of that on the, the live stream that you're watching this on. Reach out to someone. Let someone know that you want to know Jesus, that you want to start following him. They'd love to help you, maybe send you some things that will help you in this journey. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Let us see the riches that we have in Christ. Let us understand the fullness, the length and breadth and height of our salvation and all that it means, all that it means in us being resilient, all that it means in sustaining us through these difficult times, the difficult times that we've experienced and the difficult times that will no doubt be ahead. I pray, help us. Holy Spirit, empower us, I pray in Jesus' name. And I ask right now, Holy Spirit, for those that don't yet know Jesus, would you stir in them a passion to pursue him? Would you stir in them a courage to go after him, to speak to people that will help them, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, bless you. Thank you for having me with you today. And I pray God's blessing on you for the coming year. Amen. to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk and come along on any Sunday morning.